Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm JY Ping, and today we're presenting a webinar with Seven Sage consultants Tahira McCoy and Tiffany Williams. Tiffany and Tahira worked together in emissions for over 10 years, so sometimes they can almost complete each other's sentences, and sometimes they have totally different takes, but they're always a lot of fun to listen to. So without further ado, here's the webinar. I am really, really happy to be hosting this webinar with two really wonderful, amazing, super, super knowledgeable people, Tiffany Williams and Tahira McCoy. I guess I'll just give you maybe a sentence of each of their bios, and then maybe I'll just let both of you speak a little bit more about your experience in the world of law school admissions. So Tiffany spent nearly 10 years working in law school admissions, most recently as the Assistant Dean for Admission and Enrollment Management at George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School. And Tahira worked in law school admissions for 10 years also. Oh, both of you worked for 10 years. We've known each other for 10 years. We've known each other <laughs> the whole time. Yeah, wow. yeah. yeah. That is a long haul in the world of law school admissions, I feel like. Anyway, uh, Tahira was most recently the director of admissions and scholarship programs at Berkeley Law. Tahira, Tiffany, could both of you just say a couple more sentences about what you were actually doing? So not just the titles, but you know, what did your job actually involve? Sure. So I think probably the same for both of us. Well, one I'll say, I think between the two of us, we've worked at law schools that span the spectrum from, you know, the very top law schools to sort of the law schools that are more near the bottom. So I think this is probably true for Tahira too. Um, obviously, we're reading applications. We both were deans of admission. Sorry, Tahira. I'm, I know your no, whole you're story good. too. I, I'm, I'm here um, for it. Both were deans of admission so um, for various schools. And so we are ultimately responsible for enrolling a class. And so all law schools are going to have goals in terms of LSAT and GPA medians, class size, scholarship budgets, all of that. And so we managed all of that having to bring the students in, yield the students, manage the budget, do the scholarship negotiations, manage the wait list, do transfer students. I think we've both done it all, probably LLM too. I've done that as well. So um, I think it probably, probably everything in law admissions, but to hear anything I left out there. <laughs> Not really. I mean, one of the things that I know that we do that's kind of, you know, proximate to all of the admissions work is we also end up building a lot of relationships with the alumni, fundraising, just kind of being Janes of all trades. Uh, when it comes to administration at the law schools, we have to set and maintain the expectations for our bosses. And so that means a lot of times we're also managing up. It's definitely a process where we're collaborating with all of the different departments within the law school and then often on the campus as well. Very true. <laughs> okay, thanks. And I think I'll throw this first question to Tahira, but you know, both of you can just jump in whenever you want to. Tahira, what is going on in admissions land right now? What do you think is happening in these offices? What are the admissions officers actually doing right now? Right now? Okay. So we're in January. Everybody's reading files. Um, okay. Literally at every school, everybody is reading applications. Some schools are getting close to their application deadlines. Most schools are on a rolling admissions basis. And so they're also strategizing right now how many more people uh, they can comfortably admit what the budget looks like. That's something that is being constantly monitored. They may be starting to get together committees for some of their named scholarships. Some schools, probably not many at this point, might be entertaining some scholarship negotiation. There are definitely schools that are inviting students to their wait lists um, at this time. And so it's kind of managing expectations for a bunch of different groups of people at this exact moment. I see. Can you say a little more about what you mean when you say they're keeping their budgets in mind? Does that mean that they're deciding who to give money to, or does it mean they're deciding how many people to admit? Both? Something else? Definitely both. Definitely both. Um, when I said it initially, I meant in, in terms of scholarship. So some schools, as they're admitting students, they're going to be at the exact same time offering um, financial aid packages. However, there's others who take a beat, um, may, may take several beats to make those decisions. And they're having to 
in some offices review the application a second time. That's why it takes a long time. Um, in some offices, it has to go through committees to kind of determine um, the level of award. Um, some schools use a rubric. It really runs um, through a wide variety of, of options when it comes to different schools. I know Tiffany has worked at multiple schools. I've, I'm now at my fifth school. And so each one has their own kind of system when it comes to reviewing for admission and also for scholarship. And sometimes it's the same review and oftentimes it's completely separate and distinct. Yeah. And actually, even within the schools, it could change from cycle to cycle, just depending on what the cycle looks like. There's some schools I know that used to at least offer a scholarship with admission that because of the way the LSAT's going this year, um, some of those schools that typically would offer the scholarship, they're holding because they're just not sure what's happening with the LSAT. And so they've maybe offered admission, but they're going to offer scholarship later. So it really does just depend, like Tahira said. And even within the school, if a school could have done something one way last year and do it differently this year. Tiffany, that's surprising to me because from what I understand, LSAT scores are way up. I mean, they are. that's what LS, you know, that's what LSAC is publishing as well. So I would think that schools would jump on it and be offering more money. So that's not what I've heard. Um, yeah. and, and I can't tell you what every single school has done, but just from folks that I've spoken to, um, from what I've heard, schools don't necessarily have a bigger scholarship budget to necessarily spend. And so people are scoring higher on the LSAT. That doesn't necessarily mean they can then offer more money for that high LSAT. So from what I've heard, they may be actually expanding their class size and offering lower scholarships across the board. But I think that's one of the reasons why the schools want to, some of the schools are holding to sort of wait to see what they're going to get as far as application pool goes um, to then make those decisions. So, um, but every school has their own strategy with how they're doing it. And I mean, the, the other side of the coin is, you know, there are so many people that have had such kind of drastic increases in their scores that some schools are, are really taking time, more time to just kind of assess and see, you know, if everything feels like the student would be successful at their school. If, you know, when they have multiple scores, you know, what really is representative of where the student really stands, um, all of those things are going to come into play. And then it's definitely going to affect scholarship later. Tiffany, I would imagine that some people in our audience have already sent in their applications. Can you give us any insight onto when they might hear back from schools and what drives these decisions? Why does it sometimes take long? Why do some people hear quickly? Yeah, I mean, it really is, as we said before, it's dependent upon the school and how the schools, how they're doing things. Well, one thing I'll say, I know that COVID has affected some schools. Um, there's some schools I know that used to admit students weekly and now just they don't have people going to the office as often. And so a school that may be admitted weekly previously, they could be admitting monthly um, at this point. But even without COVID, it really depends on how a school sort of reviews applications and how they look at them. Some schools will do them in date order. You know, you apply, you apply in October, you'll get a decision sooner than someone that applies in January. Some schools may do something and some schools that I've worked for, actually, I feel like every school I've worked for has done something a little bit different, but um, some schools may do it when an application comes in, it goes into a bucket where it's a sort of a presumptive acceptance, presumptive deny, presumptive wait list. Um, and as you can imagine, schools may want to get to the presumptive acceptances first. So somebody that may be applied in January that they want to, a school wants to accept, they might hear back earlier than someone that applied in October where the school isn't really sure. So it's hard to say for sure. It just really depends on how the school reviews the applications. Um, but certainly I think if a school is dividing up the applications by presumptive admits, denies, et cetera, they're probably going to be getting to the presumptive acceptances first, just to be able to yield those, those applicants sooner. And question for both of you. Let's say that you've applied in, I don't know, December. And then you haven't heard from a school for a couple months. Maybe it's now February. Can you send a, a an extra essay or a letter of continued interest before they waitlist you? You're, you're smiling. <laughs> We're What's... both smiling. Okay, uh, let me start by saying this. You you can. Um, you could do that. I think that sometimes. So, so but as Tahira said, right now it's a very very busy season. Um, 
we really spend all day long reviewing applications. There are thousands of them. Um, when we were actually in the office, a lot of schools would allow their admissions folks to take file reading days, and we would actually stay home and for 10 hours straight just read applications. So to get an extra email or an extra piece of paper, <laughs> some admissions folks, some could consider that to be uh, for lack of a better word, annoying. Um, and it could rub somebody the wrong way. And sometimes you'll have applicants that, for whatever reason, they want to know a decision sooner rather than later. I know there are some admissions folks that will say, hey, if you want to know a decision sooner, I'll give you one. It's a denial. Because most likely, if they're looking to accept you, if you're sort of not on the fence, they're not on the fence about you, they probably, probably have accepted you. But I would be cautious <laughs> to sort of to bug the admissions office too much. Think about it too. You know, we're admitting folks. We're admitting you to be a student in our law school. That means that you're going to be a student that um, academic services, career services, the whole law school has to deal with. So if we're starting to view you as problematic or aggressive or just sort of needy. We don't really want that student in our school, right? So think about it from that standpoint too. It's not that it's wrong to send something. I would just be cautious. I think that's why we're smiling. That's at least why I was smiling. Why are you smiling? I mean, that was pretty much it. I will say, you know, there are definitely times where we do get those emails and, you know, yes, will we attach it to the file? Sure. Does that mean it gets seen? Not necessarily, because the person who read that file may have already completed their review and now it's going through an audit. Um, with uh, the senior officer in the office. It's possible that the file, you know, was printed and sent around to a faculty committee. And so now they don't see that printed document because we're not chasing down um, these new things that aren't actually requirements for the file. Um, you know, it's it's nice to, to see that um, extra effort However, um, you know, especially for schools that have really long applications already, um, it, it's now added to the workload. And, and so you kind of want to be sensitive to that as well. Um, I will say sometimes someone who applies in December and they haven't heard in February, that's not a bad thing. If we still have your application, that means that we have not yet made a negative decision. It might be that, you know, we're fighting over you and we're taking you to committee and we're trying to get you in. You know, you never know what's happening behind the scenes and, and we can't tell you. And so the, the thing that we really ask of students is to just be patient. I know it's hard, but you're going to have that request made of you several times more uh, throughout your career. And so, you know, just get comfortable with having to wait a little bit. It's true. Actually, when you were talking, I was thinking about this one student, this one application cycle that I really, really wanted to admit. And I really wanted to be able to admit that person. But again, it's and we all the admissions teams have goals. We have LSAT and GPA meetings that we have to meet. And I wanted I was really trying to make it work for that student. And so I did. I held and held and held to see if I could be able to admit that person without having to wait list first or do something else. So, yeah, like to hear I said, you just it actually if you haven't heard a denial, <laughs> It's, it's a good thing, or that's at least positive on that, on that level. So, <laughs> Tiffany, I'm really curious about this. I'm going to gender the student just for convenience <laughs> to refer to her. I'm going to call her a her. Can you speak in you know, general terms about what it is that made you want to admit this student and also what it is that made you hesitate? Sure. And then what did the process look like as you played tug of war? So um, typically what it is, I mean, if, if the person could help me numerically, if, you know, again, we have LSAT and GPA goals. And on top of that, I mean, schools have various goals. You could have diversity goals, gender goals. Obviously, you have scholarship budgets. There's all kinds of numbers that we're trying to meet. But usually what happens if there's a student like that, they'd be a student that um, would maybe have LSAT and GPA both below the median or high LSAT but low GPA, but I couldn't take the hit on the GPA side, whatever it is, they, they couldn't help me numerically, but I really like the story, you know, or I think that they're going to bring something great to the classroom. That's why I'm hesitating, but I don't really want to deny them because I think they really add something to the classroom, right? And so I think it depends on different schools. I think some schools have committees that it goes back and forth with. Um, it could be a process of literally this person's printed off like we had different schools I worked for did it differently, but um, a piece of paper that's like sitting on my desk and I'm looking every time I do acceptances or as things come in, can I take this person today? Do I have enough high highs to cover this low, low person today? Can I do it today? 
So it, it really depends on, you know, I, I can't say exactly what a process looks like, but it's usually there's just something about this person that I really like, great job experience, what have you. But just numerically, I can't take them. That's usually what it is. Tahira, I'd love to hear you talk about this too, and in general terms about what it looks like for you when you feel torn or when the office feels torn for whatever reason. Sure. And, and I guess I'll use Berkeley as my backdrop because... That's my most recent law school um, that I worked in admissions for. There would be a lot of times where either someone was a splitter, so one of their credentials was high, one was low, um, or they were low on both. But I felt really strongly that um, they would be a good fit on our campus, and that was because of maybe the the strength of their writing, their experience, um, maybe obstacles that they'd overcome, and just a, a very clear confidence that they would be able to come in and get it done. And, you know, confidence is great, but you have to have those other things too, um, so that we can go in and, you know, really fight um, and a lot of times it is a fight. There are times when, you know, you have to go into either the dean of admissions office or stand in front of the faculty committee and try to convince them. And they're peppering you with questions. It's very much like a trial. And, <laughs> you know, you are trying to convince them based on all of these different things. And it might be part of it might be, oh, maybe I met that student. It might be, you know, I've, I've had other conversations or I know that they have come to some events and I've been able to have like frank conversations. So I get where they're coming from. It might be, you know, more of, you know, just what I'm seeing within the application or just the fact that I've read so many that term that I know that there's nobody like them yet in our class. And I feel like that person could really enrich the class in, in some way. So it's definitely it, it can be tiresome. It can be heartbreaking because sometimes we don't get our way. Even when we are the lead of the office, there's just so many different things that we have to consider as we're making these decisions that um, we can't take everybody, even if we wanted to. And so it, it's just a matter of, you know, doing what we can for our school. Tiffany, let's turn to the flip side of what I asked you earlier. So when a school does solicit a letter of continuing interest and the student's not just being annoying... What should they do in that essay? I mean, what, you know, what is there to say? So I'm not sure I've ever worked for a school that actually solicits it. Mm. <laughs> um, have you, Tahira, have you worked for a school that, that asks for students to submit one? Um, I, think, I think we did when I was at Loyola University, New Orleans. I think we said, you know, if you're on the wait list, go ahead and send it to us. But I think that was also in a time where we were pulling a lot of people off of the wait list. And so we wanted to see who was really serious. Um, it, it really depends based on what your needs are at the time and if you're going to go to your wait list or not. I will say, though, when you're, you're asking just, I mean, I guess if a student wants to submit one, um, and I'd say probably, at least for the schools I've worked for, the best time to do that would be um, around seat deposit deadlines when uh, schools are starting to get a sense for what their class is going to look like in terms of LSAT and GPA meeting in and all those other numbers. Honestly, one of the main things I'm looking for is, you know, acceptance rate is something that plays into U.S. News and World Report ranking. Schools, most schools or many of the schools care about their rankings. What I really want to know is that if I admit you, are you actually going to attend? Obviously, if you have something you can update the committee with, you know, if you've got a promotion at your job or something, you know, you joined some club or you, you're doing something, that's great. Um, but ultimately, I'm curious as to if you're still really interested and if you're really going to take me up on the offer if I offered you admission. What should students do in back in those days when they were allowed to visit? And I guess that I'm sure this is different for, for lots of schools, too. But what should they do when they get to campus? You know, should they just drop into the admissions office and say, surprise, brought everyone, you know, take out, and I'd love to talk to you about myself. Should they avoid the admissions office? Any <laughs> tips for people um, when they're actually going to schools, if that's possible? Hopefully that will someday be possible again. Make an appointment. That's my number one advice. Walk-ins are typically going to be welcome, but because it's not scheduled, you know, it's 
probably interrupting something that they were trying to get done that day, which might actually be reading your application. Appointments help because they're able to kind of plan around that. Each school has a different system for how they deal with their appointments. So it might include other opportunities that won't necessarily be included with a a walk-in. So I, I would say, you know, plan have an idea about other things that are being offered on campus and and make it a, a visit that's worthwhile for you, not only to visit admissions, but also maybe to sit in on a class, to have a tour, um, to talk to people in the clinics. Maybe there's a professor who is working on a specific area of law or doing certain research that is really interesting to you, seeing if they might be available for coffee while you're there. Make it a whole plan that that can be really um, valuable to you because then as you're writing you know, or if this is before you apply, as you're writing your like, why that school statement, those are things that you can be adding in to say, oh, well, I really connected with Professor so-and-so, you know, I sat in on their class and then we went to coffee and we talked about these things and it just helped me to feel really comfortable on this campus. You know, like thinking, being strategic in how you're managing these visits really does help you. And for at least some of the schools, oh, I'm sorry, some of the schools in Tahira, I know you're working in career services now, um, we would allow um, career services visits. And I think a lot of times um, students have questions as to how alum from this school fare in a certain job market or et cetera, et cetera. And so those are great people to ask. Admissions is going to know some basic information, but career services is really going to have that data. And the other thing I want to say, though, because David mentioned bringing takeout, don't do that, especially for a state school, because we cannot accept the gift. So don't bring gifts. (laughs) Okay, let's spend a couple minutes talking about bottom lines, that is how to get a little more money from a school, um, and then let's open it up to questions. Tahira, I just grilled you about this on the podcast, which everyone should go listen to. So I'm going to ask the first question to Tiffany. Tiffany, if a school does not give you guidelines about when to submit a reconsideration request for your scholarship, and if they don't prohibit you from doing it, when should you ask the school for more money and how should you ask them? Sure. And so, again, it's going to be different for different schools. Um, but generally speaking, so again, schools, again, they have um, overall numerical goals that they have to meet, right? The LSAT, GPA medians, all of that. I think the best time to ask for more scholarship money would be around deposit deadlines um, because schools then will know. So scholarships are used as a yield tool, right? Like we're using scholarships to get you to enroll in our law school. Um When seat deposit deadlines come around, schools have a sense for who's going to enroll. Do we need more LSATs? Do we need more GPAs? Who do we need more of? And so if a school realizes they're short on the LSAT side or the GPA side or diversity or whatever they need, um, I think they're probably more likely to entertain scholarship offers once they have a sense of that. Also, with seat deposit deadlines, you know, we, we make all these offers and it's obviously by seat deposit deadlines, you would have your scholarship offer. Um, so when the when the seat deposits start to come in, schools have a sense for how much scholarship money they've spent and how much more they have to then give back out. So if you're asking, it's not that you could not ask before then, but if you're asking before then, schools don't really have a sense for what their class looks like, nor do they have really any idea how much scholarship money they've spent to be able to then offer you more out. So that's sort of general advice. I mean, it could vary from school to school, though. And when you say around deposit deadlines, do you mean before or after and the the first or the second one, if there's more So you could do it. I mean, I think I would have people do it typically. They would start maybe around the first deposit deadline. I think it's probably more effective maybe around the second seat deposit deadline, but somewhere in there. I mean, obviously, if the seat deposit deadline is April 1st, you might want to give the school a week to go through the go through all the application, all the uh, seat deposit forms, put it all into their system, get a sense for what it looks like. It's definitely after, but you could do it a little after. Um, they'll And they will have some sense. For schools that have second seat deposit deadlines, they obviously have a, a better sense what, this, what the class looks like after the second seat deposit deadline. I think at least to here, I don't know if you've worked for schools with second seat deposits. I think typically they're in June. Was that your? Yeah, you too. Yeah. yeah, so... I mean, I definitely, I did them um, after first seat deposit, but second seat deposit, I think I probably did um, quite a bit more because I'm really trying to, you know, get my class solidified at that point, so. But just to confuse everyone, Tahira, am I misremembering or did you say that 
you know, you think if people can ask earlier, maybe they should ask earlier because there's a limited amount of money and it goes away. That's true. And it really depends school to school, right? Like for schools that have reconsideration programs, they're going to be before seat deposits in general. Um, If it's a T14 or probably even T20 school, they're going to be earlier as well. It depends. It never hurts to ask the question. The biggest question mark is, you know, is there a, a designated policy? If so, you should follow it. And for some of these policies um, and schools, they may have that you only get one bite of the apple. And so if you ask once, you can't come back again with another thing and say, hey, how about a little bit more now? Um, And so you want to just be careful that you're really paying close attention to what those rules are. And typically those are communicated to you at the time of admission or at the time of an initial award. Okay, let's open it up to our attendees. So I think it's much more fun to hear your voices than to read your chats or your questions. So if you have a question, I really encourage you to raise your hand and I'm going to call on you and then you can just ask Tahira and Tiffany. So I canna, I called on you and you can ask your question. Hi, how are you guys doing? Hi. Good. All right, so um, I have a different, a little bit of a different situation. I'm an older student. Uh, I've actually graduated almost 20 years ago. Um, I've had been another, been in another career. Um, now I'm kind of looking to, you know, reapply. So I, re- I applied about, I'd say about 15 years ago um, to several law schools, and I'm wondering uh, two questions. As a reapplicant, does that kind of have any kind of a negative effect? Um, reapplying to some places that have been denied in the past? And how do kind of law schools look at older applicants? Is there an advantage to it, disadvantage, when they look at an application from somebody like myself? Uh, I will say first, you know, there, there's no stigma um, for someone to reapply. And having your application be that far out their record system has probably changed at least once since then. So they may not even have access to your old application to, to kind of compare at this point. As far as, you know, how schools will look at students who are applicants who've been kind of out in the, the workforce for a while, can it be an advantage? Sure. Is it always? Not necessarily. Does that mean that it's to someone's detriment if they're coming straight through? No. And so it just is going to depend on what the school is looking at, what they're looking for, and, you know, what experience you share. Um, As far as specific age, some applications in in certain jurisdictions may not even see your age. So unless you mention that you're, you know, quote unquote, a non-traditional student um, in a diversity statement or something like that, they may not know that there is, is an age thing outside of actually looking at your resume and seeing your experience. All right. We're going to go to someone else, but thanks for your question. Thank you so much, David, Tahira, and Tiffany for hosting this panel. It's so helpful and interesting. I really appreciate it. Um, So my question is, I'll give a little background first. I'm still in the process of applying. I just took the January LSAT, um, and I graduated actually from undergrad in 2017. I'm one of those folks who changed their major after they came into school realized that it was not for me. I originally came into school pre-med at Berkeley. And after I changed my major, my GPA rebounded. But I wanted to just drill down on the question, do you find it helpful for applicants like me to include addendums to our applications? And if so, what is the best way to frame or communicate a situation like this? Exactly how you just did. <laughs> Literally giving the background and, and, you know, saying, you know, like I initially had, you know, different aspirations and I started to realize, you know, that I was not performing where I needed to and that perhaps this wasn't the, the avenue for me. And as I found something else, then you highlight the progress. Addenda can be extremely helpful in the application process because they provide admissions officers with context for what they're seeing in other parts of your application. It might 
um, explain uh, a GPA dip. It might explain, you know, just kind of a random semester where something happened or kind of a slow start in the beginning. It might explain, you know, multiple LSAT scores or why scores are where they are, you know, if, if there's an issue with standardized testing. There, there's a lot of different information that we can gain from that that otherwise, if you don't submit it, we're just guessing. Um, yeah. And it would be better for you to tell us the story than for us to make it up for you. I would say, though, um, and to hear, I don't know if you'll agree or not, but I think generally um, admissions folks are spending probably about 10 minutes or so on your actual application when we're reviewing it. And, you know, if you're submitting a lot of addenda or, or extra things, um, it's not that we're necessarily going to spend five extra minutes. We just might be reading through a little quicker. So I would say the more succinct that you can make it, the better. I mean, obviously, tell your story. We need to have some context. Um, but one, writing succinctly is a skill a lawyer needs. And then two, it helps us get through um, quicker. Um and what else? Oh, but also I want to say as well, for your situation, I mean, believe me, we see a lot of folks who were pre-med initially and decided they wanted to go to law school. So it's okay. <laughs> just kind of explain it like Tahira said, um, but just try to do it as short and sweet as you can. <laughs> and can I ask just a quick follow-up? What is succinct to you? Is that three sentences? Is that a full paragraph, five to six sentences? What would you prefer to see? It's going to depend on what your story is. Yeah. You yeah. know, like for, for what you said, you could probably get it done in a paragraph. Nice. Yeah. I, I believe that Tiffany mostly admitted people who submitted haikus for their whole application. <laughs> I love them short. Yeah, I, I do. It, 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 I want them to rhyme, though. Be a haiku and rhyme. Rhyming haiku. Okay. I like Thank it. you so much, y'all. Thank you so much. All right. Good luck, Angela. Um, okay. Let's go to Bill. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for holding uh, this webinar. Um, I was just wondering a little bit about uh, international students in terms of like uh, admissions as well as sort of like some like career support in law school. What is the what was our law school sort of outlook on international students? Because uh, so I'm a Canadian student currently at Carleton College and I'm a senior about to graduate in the summer. So obviously uh, trying to figure out all my plans. And yeah, thank you so much. Tahir, I feel like you've probably had more international student experience than I have at Berkeley. Um, I mean, I personally don't look at international students any different um, than I would another candidate um, from the U.S. Really, the main things that, you know, we're, we're needing to consider when it comes to an international student is understanding the grading rubric. So we get a sense of how that performance translates to the GPA system that we're used to. Um, in Canada, you don't really have that problem. The other thing that we do consider um, from time to time is is just, you know, is there going to be um, job opportunities for a specific student that's coming from another country? If they're looking to be able to stay, what are the areas of law that they're interested in? Um, is that an area of law where there are typically sponsorship opportunities? Um, there's a lot that goes into that part. That doesn't play a huge part in admissions. Um, that's really more on the career services side. Um, so in my current role, I would be thinking about those things. But at any point, you know, when, when we admit international students, we're looking to support them as, as much as we can. And so most schools will have a center for international education or something like it that deals specifically with students for their visas. We have people that go over with you OPT versus CPT when it comes to getting your training experience um, for students who um, are undocumented or who are DACA students, DACA recipients, you know, we'll talk to students about different options that they have in those circumstances as well. Um, and so it, it's, you know, a student is a student. And so, you know, we are looking to see, you know, are you someone who can come to our school and be successful? Um, that's the big rubric. All right. Well, Bill, good luck. Thank you. Thank you so much. Karen, you can unmute yourself. So I'm thinking about trying to apply with the early decision process next year to, and I've got one school that I'd really like to apply to through early decision. And I was just wondering if you have any advice about the guiding strategy for that. Should you be going for a school where you're kind of shooting for the stars or going somewhere that you think you've actually got a fair shot of getting into in terms of 
you know, your numbers, like your GPA and your LSAT? I would say go for the school that you actually want to be at. That number one school, you know, like that's the one you should be putting your energy into as far as early decision, um, because you never know what what the the consideration is for early decision. It's typically different for the standard um, application. And so, you know, there might be opportunities through that way. Um, and typically, if you're not admitted early decision, you're put into the, the pool with everyone else anyway. So and you get another look. So I, I would go for the school where you actually, you know, if you really are 100 percent in if they admit you, um, I wouldn't put it into a school where you're like, I could go there, but it's not actually where I want to be. I'll also add that, um, and to here, I know this isn't necessarily the case at the schools that are kind of at the top of the um, the spectrum, but for schools that are sort of, I guess, bottom half of top 50 or lower, I mean, if you're a target already for that school, so if you already have like an LSAT that's at or above the school's median or a GPA that's at or above the school's median, you already have a really good shot at getting in. And that's not necessarily the case for the top, top schools, but for the schools that are kind of, you know, around 50 or below or so, you already have a really good shot if you have one of those numbers. And so I don't know that I'd advise that you sort of waste an early decision for a school like that because you're you're probably going to get in or have a really good shot at getting in. Okay, cool. Thank you. That's really helpful. All right. Thanks, Shannon. Good luck. Let's go to Brayden. Hi, guys. Uh, Thank you so much for doing this panel. I, I really appreciate it. I am looking at applying for law schools next year, and my top choice is Berkeley. Right now, I'm actually applying for jobs to work in for the next two years before I would start law school. And I've heard in recent years that law school admissions have been considering work experience more and more in candidates. And I'm currently deciding between two jobs, one with a well-known industry global leader, uh, it's third in the world, and one with a smaller regional company in that same industry that I might enjoy more and fit in better at. And so right now I'm trying to decide between those. And my question is when considering a law school's uh, law school applicants experience, would work experience at the quote unquote more prestigious option uh, provide me with a better opportunity to be accepted? Not necessarily. Um, and, and I will liken this to another part of the application, your letters of recommendation. We always say with letters, you know, it it should be more of substance than of prestige. I don't care if the person writing the letter is, is the president of the company. If they don't know what you did, they really won't be able to speak to your character, your work ethic, and the things that make you a valuable contributor to their institution. Uh, similarly, on your resume, you know, I want to, I'm looking at the experience. Name dropping is great, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you got out of it what you needed to. And if you think about it, if you're a happier employee at this other company and you're getting more done, you're having more opportunities, then you're going to do better work. And that means you're going to get a stronger letter of recommendation. So going for the thing that you actually like more is probably going to benefit you more when it comes to your application. Thank you. You're welcome. Good luck, Braden. Tiffany, I saw you nodding when Tahira was mentioning the Rex. I was especially. thinking the exact same thing. I'm like, no, go for where you're going to get the better experience, wherever the experience. I mean, because you might get an admissions committee member that doesn't know that that's like this top firm. I mean, you right. know, a lot of us are lawyers. We might have no idea, but we can all read the actual experience and see like what's substantial and what's not. Right, right. Tiff and I have been on these panels together before. We usually can finish each other's sentences. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, Tran, we would love it if you asked your question. Thank you so much um, for doing this. Um, I am applying for the next cycle, and I'm just here to learn as much as I can about the process. Mm -hmm. So 
<laughs> I know earlier um, you asked the question of if a student have the opportunity to be on campus, um, how they should utilize um, that opportunity. And so I want to follow up to that question and ask, you know, if the pandemic continue. And so the only chance to interact with the admission officer would be via the virtual event. Mm -hmm. So how do we best utilize that opportunity. I know that I would be wanting to ask a lot of questions, understand the program, understand if there's a culture fit, there's a value fit and um, all that. And I don't know if, you know, introduce myself or talk about myself would feel a little bit too much and kind of socially awkward. So I, I'm not sure how to best utilize that opportunity to interact with the admission officers. Well, I think one of the things you can first do is take a look at every school that you're interested in, take a look at their website and just see what opportunities are available. Um, some of them may offer actual one-on-one, -on -one, like sort of Skype interviews um, or Skype meetings with admissions counselors. Um, and in that case, I think that you are able to do one-on-one -on -one conversations and introduce yourself and that sort of thing. Um, some may do um, kind of like virtual sessions where you're able to sit in and if you kind of feel socially awkward and you don't really want to draw attention to yourself, um, you're able to sit in and just take a look at what's going on. Um, a lot of the schools will have current students that might be speaking or something and you could maybe get a sense for culture and that kind of thing there. Um, if you have not already registered with the Law School Admission Council, I'd say to go ahead and do that sooner rather than later. They also have events. Um, they have virtual events where the schools are there and you're able to pop in and out of rooms and make different appointments with different schools. So there are lots of different ways, but I would at least check the law school's websites to see what they have available. And like you were saying, you're going to come with your questions. Um, some of your questions may be answered during the virtual sessions. Um, and the ones that aren't, you're able to ask um, you know, yourself. All right. Well, good luck to you. And let's go to Chelsea. Hello. Hi there. Uh, okay. I was wondering, because uh, we talked about being a foreign applicant and all. I I'm a permanent student. I'm here already in the United States, but I did my undergrad in the Philippines and I sent my trans, uh, my school sent my transcript to LSAC and the result was the evaluation of LSAC just is not numbers. They just said above average student in above average schools. So I don't know what my transmitted GPA is. So I don't really know where I stand with the GPA part. I'm going to take my LSAT, but I'm still going to take my LSAT. I'm applying the next cycle, but I'm just confused with how LSAC actually evaluated my transcript. How do schools look at that if it's not like if they didn't really evaluate it by numbers because my our school system is very different from here in the United States. So you probably only see a part of the evaluation uh, from from what you're saying, because yes, we see the above average thing, but they actually give us a rubric that's based on your school's grading system. And so we get to get an understanding of, okay, what, what the numbers that your school applied would mean in our system. And so they actually do kind of do a, a, a calculation that gives us a sense of what that means. Oh, I, thank you so much for that. I was really worried. I, I just didn't know where my GPA standed in the like medians of the GPAs and stuff. Yeah, of course. The other thing to note, and Tahira, if this has changed since you're still working in law schools, let me know. But um, I think this is not true for Canadian schools, and this gets confusing, but um, I at least think from the Philippines and for most students who got their undergraduate degree from a place, a non-US school, um, yes, it's like Tahira said, they're going to show us a GPA that sort of corresponds to like what we understand as a GPA in the US. Um, but how I talked about uh, schools needing to meet LSAT and GPA medians, it comes through as what we call a zero GPA. So yes, we see an actual GPA, like we see what it what it would kind of equate to in the US GPA, um, but it doesn't, it can't help us or hurt us. It actually comes through as what we call a zero GPA. So your LSAT is going to be especially important if you're an international student and not a Canadian student, but just an international student that's not Canadian or one at least that got a degree from a non-US school, I should say that, um, because it comes through as, again, it's a zero GPA. It's kind of confusing, but putting that out there. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I didn't know that. And that's a very good thing because, I mean, I'm studying for the LSAT right now and I'm worrying about my GPA because I know I had some PEs that I had troubles with. So thank you. 
focus on the LSAT, and good luck. Let's go to Dina. I just took the January test and I'm applying uh, for 2021 at George Mason's Law School. And I just wanted to, I was just wondering whether I should write an addendum for post-law school. So I've been working at the firm that I'm going to work at after law school as an attorney. I've already been offered, a, I guess, like a pre-position or whatever. So I was just wondering because I know LSAT serves two purposes. You guys have numbers to meet, but also you want to know if like uh, the student also will be able to make it through law school or like how, like, so they don't just drop out. So you're not just wasting a seat. So do you think that would help to make an addendum with that? Yeah, so actually a question for you. Are you getting um, one of your attorney supervisors to write you a recommendation letter? Yes. Okay, so hopefully they're putting that in there. Um, I don't think it hurts. It's, have you been to a George Mason admission session? Have you talked to anybody in the office? No. Oh, with some of the words you're using sounds just like George Mason, what they say. So yeah, so one of the things, you're right. We want to be sure you're not going to drop out of law school or fail out. We want to be sure that you're going to be employed. Um, that number counts towards our ranking as well. And so if you kind of have like a preconditional offer, um, it's something that I think would help the admission committee know that, hey, at least we don't have to worry about a job. To hear that's now in career services, I'm sure you'd be happy to know that someone's, they're going to be employed. So it doesn't hurt to, to include that in there. Um, Again, keep it very short. Just let them know. <laughs> okay, yeah. And I think the words were similar just because I actually heard this from a George Mason alumni and he was actually telling me. Ah, okay. <laughs> okay, well, I appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. Okay, well, good luck. Let's go to Andreas. Hello. Hi. Hi there. Thanks for the webinar. Um, question, what parts of the personal statements you pay attention the most and what's the appropriate or the average length you would say? Because I've heard from different admission departments, some of them go, don't exceed two pages, some of them go up to four pages, it's okay. So it seems like everyone have a different um, requirement or rather desire um, how long of the personal statement to read. So I just wanted to know your perspective on it. Yeah, I mean, so every school is going to have different um, sort of rules around it. Uh, so schools that I've worked for, some have said 500 words, some have said two pages. So it really does just depend. Um, I think first and foremost, your personal statement is a writing sample. So we're paying attention to your writing ability and obviously the content as well. Um, but, you know, we want law school, obviously, um, or lawyers have to be good writers. And law school is going to train you how to do that some, but we want to see the foundation you're coming in with. So. I think just making sure that it's clear and concise and there's no errors, um, that sort of thing. But then obviously telling your story. And, you know, we see your LSAT and your GPA, but tell us something that we don't know about you. Tell us something that's interesting or, or show us how you can be an addition, a good addition to our classroom. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, you know, you know, especially for schools that are telling you what their preference is on length, that's what you should do. And does that mean you might have to do extra work because you're applying to multiple schools? Yeah. Um, the thing, you know, is like I've worked for schools where, you know, it's one to two pages and that's fine. Um, Berkeley says two to four, but four is preferable. When they say that, they mean it. Um, and so, you know, does it mean that someone writing a two pager can't get in? No. Um, but does it mean that they appreciate the effort and, you know, that extra opportunity to learn more about an applicant if they write the four-pager? Yeah. If you're sending your application to Tahira, it's got to be about 4,000 words. And if you're sending it to Tiffany, it cannot be more than four words. That's pretty much it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. And Tiffany's must rhyme as well. Yeah, please rhyme. <laughs> Good luck. We've got time for maybe one or two more questions. Kshidi, you can ask your question. Thank you. Um, so I have one question. So I'm currently in maybe making a, I don't know if this is a, I'm working on right now and taking the LSAT in February and applying late into the cycle. I've been really, really went and trying to get into law school for the fall. Obviously at the end of the cycle, a lot of spots are taken and what would you say is maybe a better way or the ideal way when I'm kind of selecting which schools I want to apply to to kind of strategically think like based off of where I'm at, like knowing there's fewer spots left and I'm late in the cycle to kind of best 
make sure like the applications I make are going to be ones where I feel like I have the best chance. I think it's hard to know that. I mean, I think you'd have to, we'd have to know what schools different goals are and I, I wouldn't know. I mean, I will say that for the schools that I've worked for, you're right. Um, it's, it is later in the cycle to apply in February. Um, however, um, to be honest, I think for the last, I'd say, 10 years or so, law schools have been sort of under-enrolling. Um, and recently, law school applications have been picking up. And so they're not, at least for the schools that I've worked for, and this probably isn't true for Tahira, for some of the top 10 schools, but um, we've had smaller classes than what we'd like to have. So it's not so much that we would run out of space and seats. Um, it just could be that we're running out of scholarship money. Um, but if you were a strong applicant, if you applied in February and we had scholarship money, or even if we didn't, um, we could still offer you admission because we weren't really going to run out of seats. You just might not get a strong offer. But to hear, I don't know if that's been the case for the for the top schools. Have you guys been under enrolling or? Um, not really. Um, okay. It's been pretty constant. And, and Berkeley, the last couple of years, has brought in a class um, slightly bigger than than they wanted to. And so I would imagine over the course of the next few years, they're probably going to actually pare it down a little bit. Um, and part of that really actually has to do with capacity for, you know, different room sizes and just being able to fit everybody in the building. And so it's really going to depend on each school as far as which ones, you know, you should apply to to kind of increase your chances. I would say, you know, like if they're accepting applications and they're high on your list, you should apply. You know, it, it's not really about it's hard to say what your chances are with a school, especially as they get closer to their application deadline, because their priorities change over time. And so, you know, you might as well shoot your shot. All right. Good luck. OK, we're going to have to go to the last question. Deanna. Thank you for having this event. I was just wondering if. There are some things that we neither mention in our personal statement um, that will kind of set us apart from other applicants. Like what are qualities or things that we've done that could really set us apart from other people? You want to go first, Tiff? No, go ahead. <laughs> so the hard part is, right, it, there's never a checklist. We're, we're never looking for someone to say like these three buzzwords and, and then it works out. It's really more about you telling your authentic story, um, whatever that is, because then it's it's original because it's yours. You know, it might be that, you know, 10 people have similar upbringings or similar experience, but how you tell the story, what's important to you and what you emphasize in that story is still going to be different. And so it, it it's not really about trying to think up what's going to differentiate you. You being yourself is what differentiates you. All right. Well, thank you, Deanna. And thank you, everybody, for coming. And thank you, most of all, Tiffany and Tahira. You brought a lot of great information and... It was just really fun to hear from both of you. This was a lot of Thank fun. You guys. All right. Well, good luck, everybody. I know it's a really stressful time, but I'm wishing all of you the best. And like Tahira said, just take your shot. You never know what's going to happen. And it's certainly not going to work out well if you don't take your shot. So just go for it. All right. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Hello. It's JY again. Thanks for listening. If you're looking for more information about law school admissions, head on over to sevensage.com slash admissions. Thanks and see you next time.